1: Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is February the 5th, 2019. It is a Tuesday. That means it is a Just Jack show. And today we are going to talk about starting seeds. We covered this a tiny bit last week with a new look at modern homesteading since gardening is such a big component to homesteading but today we're going to take a deep dive into it now what i did today i went out on instagram this morning i put out a video and said hey let me know what you want me to talk about here tell me the concerns you have the problems you have when it comes to starting seeds and i also went on the facebook forum page not my main page not the business page, the forum page. It's really highly interactive, and I ask the same question, and boy, did I get response. Um, I can't say that I'm going to cover everybody's stuff here, uh, but certainly a huge portion of today's show is generated by your questions, your comments, your concerns via social media. This is a good reason to follow us if you don't, because you never know when I'm going to do this, and you never know how I'm going to do this. Uh, last week, I took input on which topic to cover, and I did that only on Instagram, not on Facebook. So, you know, uh, give Instagram a shot if you haven't, guys. I, I, I was like, for years, I never did anything with Instagram, and to my own detriment, but um, I've been kind of surprised since I found out some of the people that we can follow on Instagram. Like, we follow a lot of people on different hiking channels and uh, national parks, and just some of the pictures they, they, they post bring a lot of joy to your day, so... Uh, definitely get on Instagram if you're not and check out It's a Jack Life and uh, I think you'll enjoy some of the stuff we do there that we don't do anywhere else remember my Instagram channel um, is a place where you get to see parts of my life that have nothing to do with the show and if it wasn't for Dorothy you'd never see them at all <laughs> so it's Dorothy doing whatever Dorothy wants to do and having a good time doing and interacting with y'all. Alright with that before we get into the main topic of today's show let's go ahead and hear from our two sponsors of the day Sponsor of the day number one today is uh, harvesteating.com, the awesome chef Keith Snow. Uh, he has a great uh, website. He's got some courses on how to cook. He's got a blog. He's got a great YouTube channel. He's got a great store with a, a lot of great products. And he's been serving on our expert council for like five years now. So it's just an awesome guy to have as part of the team here and as a sponsor of the show. Now, I want to frame, you know, learning to cook. With today's show, if you're going to do all this work to start seeds, to grow the best quality food you can in your own backyard, don't you think you should up your your game a little bit when it comes to uh, to cooking? I do, so I'll tell you what. Chef Keith is a guy you can learn a lot from. Check out his website and all his great stuff at harvesteating.com. Next up today, Safe Castle Royal. This is I called him the original survival podcast sponsor because when we had no sponsors. Uh, When we were so young as a show that I wasn't even willing to take a sponsor, Vic Rontala from Safe Castle said, hey, we want to sponsor the show. I said, dude, I can't do it right now. I really can't. He said, what do you mean? I want to write you a check. And I'm like, no, I don't have enough listeners yet. It wouldn't be right. And that that really, I think, was an establishment of a great relationship that now has gone on for almost 10 years. Uh, We were about six months into it, and we had you know a few thousand or more uh, listeners, and we were growing rapidly, and I felt comfortable. And we brought them in as the first sponsor, and they've never blinked, and they've never left us. They have everything you could think of for your prepping needs, the practical to the tactical, the guns the gardens, and everything in between. You'll find it all at Safe Castle Royal. They have a great discount program. It's uh, $29 a year, and it's worth every penny, and it saves you big money on everything they sell. But if you're an MSB member that supports this show, you get that membership for free, uh, and it's a lifetime. You can't even buy that membership lifetime, but they will give it to you for free if you are a supporting member of TSP and the Members Brigade. So they are just an outstanding supporter. And again, the original Survival Pos- Podcast sponsor. We'll learn more at safecastle.com. Okay, with that, I want to uh, jump headlong into today's topic. Um, I want to start out with saying something that's not even in my notes, but I think it's important that I say this because since I've been doing this show a long time and there's a lot of things I know really, really well and have a lot of success with, when I put something out, I think a lot of times it's assumed that I'm putting it out as an expert. Sometimes I'm putting it out as a really highly qualified person. I don't really like to use the term expert for myself. Um, but you know, I really feel qualified to give the information. And I really feel like if you do exactly what I say you do, you should do, you will always get good results. And if you don't, you didn't do what I said. I'm not quite there with this topic. I am good at starting seeds. Or I wouldn't do a show by myself. I'd bring somebody else in. But if you had to rate it from a 1 to a 10 on my success rate as, as a seed starter, and a 1 was you just suck and nothing even grows – I mean, like you put the seeds in there and they just die. And a 10 was, every single time you get a great result, I would probably give myself somewhere between like a 7.6 and a 7.8, which is pretty good. I mean, that means that in general, I get good healthy plants, even though I have some failures, and that in general, I get enough to make the time worthwhile doing. But I do have some bad years. I've had years where... You know, I had a few of the things that I started came out really good, and they went out and they did their thing. And, you know, some of the basic stuff like peppers and tomatoes, which are like the big two that people always want to start early for obvious reasons. Like I just finally said, screw it and just stop trying and waited a couple more weeks and went out and bought plants. So it, 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 there are – and we work our way through these problems. It happens to everybody, and there's a bunch of different ways to do this. I'm going to try to give you as many options as I can. I'm going to try to help you with as many things go wrong, how to deal with them or prevent them in the first place as I can. But I'm doing this as someone that's pretty damn good at it, but I am not promising you results because there's so many variables at stake here. Um, but what I want to start out with is something I've talked about in the past on the show that I think is really important for people to get their heads around to realize that sometimes maybe we cause the problems and we, we try too hard. And we make things fail that otherwise succeed. And I think the best way to do that with understanding this topic is to look at how seeds germinate in the wild. Because this answers so many questions. So we think that, you know, we're providing this perfect environment. We're either using artificial lighting or some kind of way of filtering sunlight or controlling sunlight. And we're providing optimum temperature and never let the ground dry out and block the wind or whatever. And we provide this perfect little bubble for our seeds. And then if you think about that and how difficult it can be at times, you wonder, how do plants just grow? Like just grow in nature? Because nature seems so harsh. So it, it seems harsh, but nature doesn't grow gardens. Nature grows ecosystems. And what you never see for very long in one place in nature, unless something is very wrong, is bare earth. You, you see some sort of growth, whether it be meadow, whether it be field, whether it be brushy growth, whether it be woods. You see an open space in nature that, that plants don't start colonizing relatively quickly, something bad happened. Okay, it's the middle of a desert, somebody salted the earth, what well, you get it. So there's some major, significant disturbance that nature is not yet able to repair. But in time, most disturbances will begin to be repaired. And the first plants that grow there will be the toughest, hardest, hardiest pioneering plants you can get. Um, the, the stuff that you just you can't stop it from growing, the stuff that you see growing in a crack in a sidewalk, that stuff will show up. It'll start to establish a, a beachhead. As it does, it will produce organic matter that will fall. It will spread. And sooner or later, you'll have some sort of a covering. Now, along comes the seed. Let's, let's make this even one of those seeds that we struggle to grow. Somebody goes in the garden, picks up a pepper, off the plant looks at it. It's got some sun scald on it. It's starting to rot. Maybe a bug's chewing on it. It's says, meh, and throws that pepper just instead of composting it or trying to use it. They just throw it in the grass. A few weeks later, Mr. Gardner, who's struggling with his pepper plants, finds a young, bushy, tough-ass little pepper plant growing in the grass and wonders how this all happened. Well, that pepper seed fell down and became somehow in contact with the earth. It probably had some of the pulp of the pepper on it, too. And maybe it was really windy, but since the grass was a little bit tall there, or whatever was tall there, the wind really didn't affect it. It was blocked, and it was protected by the plants. And while the sun was beating down on your garden, the sun was being filtered through the lower-growth plants to this little seedling. And of the you know 20 seeds that were in that pepper, the strongest of the 20 not only germinated, but lived long enough for you to find it. And actually that area down there in the bottom of that grass was pretty freaking sheltered. There was a humidity containment down there. There were already root pathways where other plants that had grown had died off. And that little seedling followed those root pathways and was able to get nutrient from the dead organic matter from those root root pathways. Since it was all covered, there was probably a lot of biological organisms going on down there. Now, if Mr. Gardner has practiced cover cropping or has done mulching or anything like that, maybe his garden soil is even better. But that stuff down there is not bad. It gave the plant everything that it needed. The temperature was warm enough. The moisture was high enough, but it wasn't too high. Excess moisture was able to drain away. The light was filtered and long, and that little plant grew. And there's something important to think about here, which is that in all of this discussion, if the plant you are starting can be planted directly in the ground and do well in your climate with the growing season you have, plant it in the ground and let it grow from day one in the place that you want it to be. Because we have all found that tomato plant that volunteered. We have all found that pepper plant that volunteered. A lot of time that happens later in the season, maybe that plant doesn't produce very much because it didn't have enough time in, in, the, in the growing season to get highly productive. But that plant usually is so much healthier than all the other stuff we babied. And that's because it naturally selected and it grew in its place. And those roots were never touched and never disturbed. So the easiest thing you can do right now to make your life better is to determine the things that you can plant in the soil and plant them in the soil at the right time for you. The other thing is to figure out what are the plants that I can plant when there's still a bit of a freezer or frost, give them a little bit of protection, and even if they will do better started from seed, they don't need to get very big. good example of this would be things like lettuces and spinaches. Those are the types of things you go ahead and do in your little six-packs or your 72 cells or whatever. Because that plant only needs to get a couple inches tall and have a few true leaves on it. And as long as it gets protected from wind, and we'll talk about ways to do that later today, it can go straight into the soil and it can even handle it when it freezes. Now, it can't handle super hard freezes when it's that young, but we give it a little protection and it goes down to 27 degrees, it doesn't care. You give a tomato a little protection and it goes down to 27 degrees, it's probably dead. Or even if it survives, it gets so shocked that you're behind just waiting a couple more weeks to put it out. Okay, so let's keep that in mind as we go through this. Let's start with setting up your system. Here's some questions that I think you really need to ask yourself when you're doing this. How much do you really want or need to start? I think what happens is people get this idea that well, I need to grow you know fifty, a hundred, a 1, thousand seedlings. And what I would say to you right now is look at the garden you have. how many beds you have. If you have like four um, 72 square foot beds, probably the most plants that, that you would ever be able to have a place for coming out coming out of the gate. With your first start uh, of new plants, and all that I said, uh, 72 square feet, that that is not what I meant. Uh, I'm thinking four by eight beds, so 32 square feet. So you have, you have four 32-square-foot beds. You have 128 square feet. If you started all plants that can use one square foot of grow area, then the most plants you would ever need to start would be, what, uh, 128 square feet, right? So... 128 plants sounds like a lot, but it doesn't even have to take a big footprint up. Even if you're using like four-inch pots or solo cups or something like that, we'll talk about all that stuff in a minute, that's not that big of an area. So as soon as we get off of having this huge area, then everything starts to get easier. And, and four, four, four eight is a pretty good, you know, kitchen garden. And it's a place a lot of people are going to start. Now, the next thing is, of that 72 square feet... How much are you going to plant there that doesn't need to be started indoors or in a greenhouse or in some situation like that? If you're going to grow beans, you wait until it's warm enough and you put them in the ground. If you're going to grow peas, you go as early as you can and you put them in the ground. If you're going to do carrots, you you don't transplant carrots. You don't transplant corn. You can transplant lettuce, but you don't always have to. We'll talk about some tips and tricks to do it and get it going and get around needing to start it that way. So now, how much of that bed do you really need plants for? If it's, let's say, half, if it's half, it's what, 64 plants? So now, a a small shelving unit... And either four LED grow lights or two light fixtures for T8s, and you've got enough sp- you've got enough space. Now, where it's going to be, how we're going to do it, how we're going to solve the problems, I I don't think it's really as critical as first. Let's let's rein it in from thinking we need some giant you know ten by twelve greenhouse, unless you're going to go into you know marketing your plants and selling your plants, which is a good side hustle. You don't need that, and before you do that. Get good at doing it. So let's rein it in and bring it down in size. And don't, don't, I'm not saying don't start more plants than you have space for, because starting exactly twice as many gives you the ability to have half of them die and still have enough plants. But don't go out there and start a 1,000 plants when you have room for a 100. Don't do it. Because you will fall behind on your maintenance and upkeep and learning, and you'll lose so many you might end up with nothing. When if you just went out and started 50 plants, you might come across the finish line with 30 really good ones. And that's, that's. if you did that in your first year, you should just be proud of yourself and pat yourself on the back. All right? So manage your expectations. Then we got to start thinking about, well, where are we going to do this? Indoors? Garage? Outdoors? Greenhouse? Where are we going to do this? And that has a lot to do with, well, what's your climate? Flatly? I have never had better results with starting plants than having them be able to receive natural sunlight and be relatively warm. That is that is the best. In my climate, it's really easy if you're only doing, say, 50 to 100 plants to have trays that are easy to move and do all your seed starting in some sort of a greenhouse. We'll talk about different options for that soon. And when we get those times when it freezes, go out, carry your trays indoors, have maybe a decent grow light setup, so at least if they have to stay in for three or four days they don't die. But as soon as you stop having freezing weather consistently, you card them right back out in the greenhouse. That is probably the best way. Some sort of a heated greenhouse where we don't have to do that or we only have to do that under the most extreme weather, even better. Something like a cold frame we'll talk about later, really good. Often we can do a cold frame and we will not have plants freeze. Uh, we can even do an improvised cold frame using something like uh, hay bales. So an old-fashioned cold frame like my like grandfather had. He started all his plants for our garden, which was about a quarter-acre garden. All the plants he needed to start, which was peppers, tomatoes, broccoli, cauliflower. We planted everything else direct in direct sow. We did not start them early as seed. When it came to running stuff later in the summer, running in the fall, I would start plants like Swiss chard, etc., cetera, in pots, kind of in filtered shade, just sitting on the ground with a tray because out in the garden they got too much sun as babies and they got hit too hard with pests right away, so I would get them up. But other than stuff like that, everything else we did direct sow. Cucumbers were direct sow. Corn was direct sow. Beans were direct sow, etc. cetera. Now, this isn't some you know, tropical paradise, it was central Pennsylvania, USDA Zone 6. So most of you can put most of your stuff directly in, and you should. And then that opens up the idea of let's not even do a rack system. Let's, let's do some kind of an outdoor greenhouse cold frame. And if it gets really, really cold, let's bring the stuff inside. The other thing it does is it lets us reduce how big this protective dome, shelter, whatever it's going to be, is. And if we are going to heat it at all in some way, then it's cheaper to heat and more efficient to heat than a really big open space. Because one thing you can't do, you can't put in a 12 by 12 greenhouse that's not heavily insulated and not using some sort of off-grid heat like compost heat or something like that, and be in a climate where you need to heat it 20 days during this period of time, at least even 20 nights during this time, with something like propane and end up okay financially with the decision when it comes time to put those plants in the ground unless you were growing so much that you were selling plants and making money off it. If you're going to do all that and you're going to end up with 50 to 100 plants, you would have probably been better off finding some place to buy them affordably and let somebody else do it. Because even though you, you came out way ahead on the cost of seed and dirt, you're what you're burning, 3 4 or $5 worth of propane a day for 20 days, buy a lot of plants with that. So if we're going to start stuff outside, unless we're going to do it where it's a financial component to our our lifestyle, or it's a really big garden, like a market garden or something like that, then we need to kind of size that stuff down or go very heavy insulation or come up with some alternative heat source. Um, As far as lights, your lighting choices are LED, T5, T8, T12, which we're not even going to talk about, um, and natural. And my favorite for the average person is led it's the latest technology it's full spectrum it works really good it's affordable it's cheap because we always can say well you know i got my money back on that you know 70 bucks i bought for two light fixtures and some ta bulbs okay what was the electrical cost and they're actually pretty efficient don't get me wrong they're pretty efficient but if you buy decent led lighting you know you might get five seasons out of it before something comes out that's just so much better you buy it just because it's that much better where with those uh, fluorescent bulbs, you should be replacing those every year. So now you got an ongoing recurring cost. Um, if you have fluorescent light fixtures, especially T5s, T8s, use them. I mean, if you already have it, use it. Don't go buy something different. Uh, the other thing I like about the fluorescent fixtures is they're long, and they, they, they lend themselves well to a rack system. Where the LEDs, you kind of got a square foot with the ones I recommend, the Kingbos and you kind of have to use you know, a lot more of them to to make up a space. So you you got to plan out how much space you're going to need based on the size of your containers at the time that they're going to be the biggest and all of them are still going to be there, and then work out your lighting footprint from there if you're doing indoor lighting. Again, as I said, though, natural lighting, if you can do it, is what I've had the best results with. Last year, I was running a 600-watt kingbow Light in a hydroponics tent with heat at night Inside my garage. Because I just didn't have any room in the house to do it without getting yelled at. And it cost me more electricity than I should have allowed it to. To run that heater. Because we had a pretty tough winter last year. And the plants were doing okay. I went out to my greenhouse. And I don't have a lot of space in there because of the aquaponic system in there. And I'll tell you about a a change coming with that in in a future episode. But I took some um, cheap metal shelf brackets that you can buy at Home Depot or Lowe's and bolted them up high in the greenhouse above my my rain gutter uh, garden in there, and just put some two-by-sixes across there and made a shelf. And I took the flats out of the grow tent, and I brought them outside, and I put them up there. And everything took off immediately because it was getting enough sunlight that even though it was 45 degrees outside, it was, you know, 85 degrees inside the greenhouse, even though the greenhouse needs some real attention to be more efficient. And it was getting that good direct sunlight, and it grew like crazy. And there was two problems with this. And this is what you got to think about if you're going to take this kind of approach. Number one, because it was way out there and way up high, it got easy for me to forget to water everything and let stuff dry out. And I did not automate something, and if I was going to do that, I should have. And it got to be like, well, I don't think it's going to go below freezing tonight, and I'm really tired, I worked all day, and I don't feel like going out there to get them. Now, if I had that greenhouse more fixed up so it was more efficient, I could have it set up to heat a lot more efficiently. And I could bring those plants in more square footage to work with. Not really square foot. If I got some of the stuff that's in the way out of there, it could make it a lot better, and it'd be a lot easier to set up automation for watering and things like that. So that's just, again, more to think about. Um, heating. When you look at heating, you know you have mats, you have space heaters, etc. I've had people tell me that they think the seed starting mats are overpriced. Um, I know they cost more than a heating pad or a reptile heating pad or something like that or heat tape. In my experience, they hold the right temperature, they don't get too hot, they don't fail, and they work better. And again, if we go back to we're not trying to start a thousand plants if you're doing a market garden, you got to get you know a different mindset um, but if we're not trying to start a thousand plants we're trying to start 30 40 50 plants We're probably better off just using purpose-built heating mats. There's a lot of other ways to do things I mean you can take float one container in another container of water that your plants are in and heat that water with an aquarium here. And that'll give you humidity and everything. You can can get creative here. But if you're just your first year trying to get this done, get a heating mat. Now, this is the other thing. People think, well, then I need a heating mat for all my trays. Not necessarily. You need a heating mat mostly to get good germination and that initial growth up to your first true leaves. At that point, if you're doing this indoors, the plants don't need a lot of help from a standpoint of heat. What happens is, in our homes in the winter a lot of times, even when we heat our homes, the temperature in the home might be in the high 60s. We have wet soil, and we have evaporation. That soil, if you take a thermal gun and and shoot that wet soil when it's wet, it might have a temperature down around 50 degrees, 48 degrees, somewhere like that. Now, it'll be warmer at different times and colder at different times, but it'll, it'll stay fairly cold. It will definitely be colder than the air temperature. And most seeds want kind of a temperature of around 70 to 80 degrees in soil to germinate really quickly because we want fast germination, quick initial growth, and then slow, steady, bulking up of the plant size before it goes out in the real world. All right? So what that means is we can get that heating mat and take our seeds that are going to need the longest lead up to going out, start them first, and once they're up and germinated... We can then move them to not having the heating mat and start our next tray of seats. So one mat or two mats versus four mats or six mats may be all you need. The other thing we can do, hey, you know, take an old fish tank, turn it upside down, and you can create a heat trap that way, and you can heat that, and a small starting mat pretty much... You can fill the inside of that aquarium, even if the mat's not under there, and you'll have enough warmth in there to get the soil up the temperature. A lot of ways that we can be creative with this. If we're doing things inside a grow tent, we have a lot less of that evaporation. We have more of the humidity control. It's a lot easier to keep things warm. The lights themselves will help keep the plants warm. This is another thing. You can mitigate your need for heat if you do what you should be doing with most lights anyway. Even LEDs do generate some heat. Those lights should only be about an inch above the soil before those plants are germinated. And once they germinated, they should, that, that light should only come up a couple inches. Get your lights down low. What we're trying to do is make the plant feel like I got all the, as long as it's not too much light, it's not too hot, I got all the light I need. I can focus on getting strong, right? You want your plants to be like a Filipino wrestler, right? Not, not 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 a three-pointing white basketball player. Three-point shooting white basketball player. Tall and lanky. You don't want that. You want mean, little, tough, pit bull-like plants, right? You want that tough. Like if you've ever had to wrestle a guy that weighed as much as you but was six inches shorter than you, it sucks. It completely sucks in every way, because they've got so much leverage. With a plant, you're not looking for leverage. You're looking for the ability to be stocky. So we bring those lights way down, and as those plants come up, we bring those lights up. Well, you do that, and all of a sudden, you're warming the soil to a degree just from the lights. I want to talk a little bit here about determining your starting dates. This is really, really important. So what you want to do is plan if Farmer's Almanac says your last frost date is March 15th, you probably want to plan to put your plants out March 21st, unless the weather guesser tells you you're getting a a significantly late frost at that point. Give yourself a week. But, But time your plants so they'll be ready on that day, and give them one more week of being taken care of. Because we're going to use that week to harden plants off. So... What you do, you go to Farmer's Almanac. I have a link in the show notes so that you stick your zip code in. It'll tell you your average last frost date and your average first frost date in the fall. Then you need to count back. If that plant, and you just read the seed package or the catalog you're buying the seeds from, if that plant needs six weeks of, of, of being started in advance before it gets put out, then you count back six weeks from that date, and that's when you about when you want to start your seeds. It, it's really that simple. Now, I want to talk about hardening off. Here's what happens a lot of times. Joe decides he wants to start seeds. Joe listens to a show on on the Survival Podcast on starting seeds. Joe goes out and gets some lights. Maybe he gets a pot tent, right, whatever. Uh, He gets a little greenhouse, whatever he does, and he gets all his plants. He puts them in his little containers with this perfect soil, and they grow all beautiful. And he waits for a week after his last frost date. He checks the weather guesser for a projection, and there's nothing even close for, for the next 10 days on the forecast. He feels really good. Nice sunny day, right in the middle of the day when the sun's at the highest point because he got out of bed late on Saturday when he put his seeds in the ground. Joe goes out to his garden, and he takes all these perfect little looking plants, and they are just... Perfect looking, they're mean, they're tough, they're low and squatty. His tomato plants are as big, the stalk on his tomato plant, even though it's only like five inches tall, it's as big around as his little finger. He is so excited. He puts all his his plants in the ground. He steps back and waters them in. He feels really good. He comes back an hour later and they all look like shit. Transplant shock. And it's more than just transplant shock. This plant went from a place where it didn't have any wind touching it, It didn't have major fluctuations in temperature. Whatever light was the right amount of light, if it was natural sunlight, it was somehow filtered through the shade of an opaque greenhouse or Joe used an area on the side of the house where there was shade in the afternoon or whatever. And now it just went out in the middle of the day in the blazing sun right after being transplanted. And then it got really cold compared to what the plant's used to. And the plant is just all freaked out and it just looks like crap. Sometimes the plants turn around and come back for you. Sometimes they don't. So what we want to do is we want to give the plants a little more sun, a little more wind every day for a week leading up to planting them out. So if we had them in kind of a place where they get shade um, for four hours at the end of the day, we want to move to a place where maybe they'll only get three and then two and then one. If they were indoors, we want to move them outside to kind of that shady place. We want to just think about it like a fish going in a tank. You know, you float the bag so the water comes to it like that, and then you maybe add a little bit of water, and then the fish goes in. So the fish doesn't go from water that was 55 degrees because it was shipped and it got cold, and it could survive, but it had 55-degree water, and it had a pH of 6.4, and then you dump it in a tank where all your fish are happy because they're at 80 degrees with a pH of 7.4. And the fish is just like, ah, right? That's how your plants get. So take time to harden your plants off and kind of plan, maybe not even a whole week, three to four days leading up to it to give those plants some time to adjust, and you'll have a lot better uh, results when you set them out. I want to do some troubleshooting now, like because I think the basics of how you do this are pretty well understood, and I can give you a link to, a, to an earlier show if you just want to know the how. I want to talk about all the stuff that goes wrong and all the ways we can we can deal with it because that's what I got the most out of social media. Not exactly how do you do this, but I tried it, and this shit happened, and I didn't like it. It made me angry and sad, and I couldn't fix it, and I don't want to do this anymore. So that's what I want to focus on. Let's start out with slow and low germination rates. People say, I put all everything out, and man, it just took forever for those little guys to pop up. Uh, or like only 10 of them did out of 100, or what have you. Now, you could have crappy seed, but it's probably not the case. And I'll say my thoughts on that for seed storage questions later. Um, most of the time, slow and low germination is because the soil is too cold, and it's for the reasons we were talking about. You think, well, like the house is 71 degrees. Now, what's the soil temperature? You know, the Tech City little laser thermometers get interesting. To to go, you know, you say the temperature in the house, the air temperature is 72 degrees. Point that sucker at your wall. I mean, I'll do it for you right now. I have the house currently at uh, 70 degrees. That's the temperature of the house. Um, But the wall temperature on one side of the house is 73. And the wall temperature on the other side of the house where it's colder is 68. Interesting, isn't it? The temperature of my desk is 77 degrees because I have my arm laying on it. I guarantee you, well, I have a a glass of water sitting here that's been sitting here all day and never had ice in it, and it is 65 degrees. I'm actually taking these temperatures right now. So the water is 65 degrees in a glass sitting on the desk, and the desk is 76 degrees. So imagine wet soil with evaporation creating evaporative cooling. And that is most likely the case. If you want to increase your germination rates, increase the temperature of the soil temperature. But again, you got to think about this. It doesn't necessarily mean you need to go out and buy purpose-built products. If you live in like an old house up in the northeast, you probably have a radiator. If you don't know what a radiator is, you don't have them. But if you do, your plants don't need light until they germinate, with some rare exceptions, and they're not going to be the ones you start early. Set your tray on top of that radiator until they germinate and then go put them under the lights. There's one way. Here's another way. Um, if you own an incubator, you literally have a box that maintains a great humidity point that you can dial your temperature in exactly. Yeah, I know we germinate uh, or we germinate. We, we hatch eggs at like 98 degrees 100 whatever you know 99 depending on the bird. Um, but we could take all our little seeds that we're trying to start, drop them in our incubator, set that sucker to 84 degrees. As soon as they germinate, take them out and put them under your lights. There's a lot of ways to do this. There's a lot of ways to do this. So that's the number one thing that causes that. Um, Some seeds, though, do have a need. Now, generally, this is not your typical vegetable seeds, but some need to be scarified, some need to be stratified, which means they need to be held at a cold temperature for a period of time. Some of them really do well with being soaked, Um, Again, I do not think you should start your peas or beans in a pot. But when you're putting those out in your garden, if you're going to plant in the morning, take them at night and soak them in water overnight, you know, like eight hours overnight. And your germination will be faster and and stronger by doing that because they'll hydrate themselves. There's many seeds that do that. The next, and this was the one I got so many people ask about on social media today. Long and leggy, your lights are too week for the plant. Lower your lights all the way down to the plant. Now I actually did a video of like you if you this already happened and yeah you can lower your lights but now you have this pathetic little plant that's like four inches tall and it's all legging it's falling over. I did a video of what you can do to fix that and the video's in the notes so I won't go deep into it. Basically you push it down a pile of dirt around it and get the lights down low. Move it into a a bigger pot and put it deeper and get the lights down low but leggy is almost 99.9% of the time you do not have enough light to the plant. And so the plant is putting all its effort into getting as high as it can because light must be there somewhere or I wouldn't be growing here. Think about the plant in the grass. It gets filtered sunlight, but it gets the most light when it emerges from the grass. We, the innate the, the intelligence in a seed tells it that, that light is up and if it doesn't get enough light, it will like I'm going to die. Think about it this way. like You know that certain things aren't good for you, but if I put you in a situation where that's your only chance, you'll do them, and then once I get that done, maybe I'll figure this out. That's what the seed's doing. Uh, poor color. Poor color in plants generally is due to a lack in nutrients. Since you should be using a quality potting soil, it shouldn't be that possible, but it can happen. Using a small amount of liquid fertilizer in, uh, what you water with is a really great way to, people say you should never fertilize seedlings. And I say to those people, just shut up and go away and don't talk to people. You're, you shouldn't be allowed to talk to people and pretend that you know what you're talking about. Because plants need nutrients, and if they're not getting nutrients and we can give them nutrients that they can use, we should do that. You know, it's like, well, they want fruit or whatever, just shut up, just stop. Okay? I- I'm serious, like, just don't listen to that. Um, the other reason, though, can often be because of cold soil temperatures. If we're not getting warm enough, the plant, even though the nutrients there, it can't use it. Uh, and then sometimes poor color is an indication the plant is just basically dying for a variety of reasons. Again, if it's, if it's leggy and has poor color, it probably has poor color because it's leggy. And it probably is leggy because it's not got enough light. Um, mold, slime, dampening off. Almost always too much water. The the soil is too wet and it doesn't get enough oxygen and it causes all these problems. I like the idea of watering seedlings from the bottom, but what I have found is it leads a lot of time to mold and slime and dampening off. You don't disturb the surface, it's really great. But if the plants are sitting there in water, it can be a problem. So what's the solution? Well, one solution is water the plants, however you do it with a misting wand, with a small watering can, whatever, like you would normally do, but have them sitting in a tray where, yes, they can get water from the bottom. Give them a small amount of water in the bottom. where By the time you come back at the end of the day, it won't have any water in it anymore, and the plant will still be damp enough to make it till tomorrow before you have to water it again. That's one way you can extend how long, how, you know, how frequently you have to water, but you let the root ball dry out. That's one way. Uh, another way is to set up, if you could do it, where you're not going to make your house wet, wherever you have a set up, is to set misters up and have misters frequently mist the surface throughout the day so you never worry about the plant completely drying out, but you never oversaturate it. Another way would be an, an aquaponic slash hydroponic type of solution where the plants are in a tray, The tray fills up with water once a day. Let's say there's a big tub underneath the rack. And once a day, a little pump kicks on. It runs for a certain period of time. You have some sort of a fail-safe so that it can't flood. And then it turns off, and then maybe a solenoid opens a valve, and then the tray drains. So it waters from the bottom, and then it drains out. Another way would be a manual process that's very similar. We create a tray with some sort of a drain in it, the drains to a bucket we come in and we fill our tray and we wait 10 minutes and then we open it and drain our tray that would be another way uh, there's a lot of ways you can do this but watering from the bottom would be great if you could do it all the time i have found though that it usually results in too much moisture in any event if you're getting mold and slime and dampening off you're too wet or you're too humid there's just nothing else that causes this um Next was a lot of questions on keeping things warm, and we kind of covered that to a degree. But again, I want to reiterate, look, where do you already have places that are very, very warm? Even though I said, yeah, if you heat your house, uh, but the air temperature is like 68 degrees, because a lot of us aren't going to try to make our house 84 degrees in the winter, moist soil in the house could have temperatures that are 10, 15 degrees less due to evaporative cooling. But if you have the the way you heat your house is with a wood stove, right near that wood stove, it's not freaking 68 degrees. It's like 88 degrees. So put your stuff there. If you have a side of your house uh, that gets hit really, really hard with sun all day, and that room is naturally 10 degrees warmer than the rest of the house, especially with the door closed, put your plants in there and close the door. Just don't forget about taking care of them. You know, if you have a greenhouse, if you can insulate it then you can figure out how to heat it and it's going to be plenty warm in there during the day when the sun's out so try to figure out the existing places you have that are that are really warm and that's where to start start your seeds and your plants i like the the proper you know actual heat mats for starting seeds i do not for a minute think that a heating pad is a good solution. Most of the heating pads on the market today have now an internal timer that basically if it, if it stays on for you know an hour or something like that, it shuts it off to keep people from like burning themselves in bed or whatever. Electric blankets don't seem to be that efficient. If I wanted to do a lot of seeds indoors and I wanted to maintain a soil temperature, I would use heat ta- tape and I would control it with a thermostat. So heat tape basically it rolls out so you have a big long shelf this big long roll of heat tape you can have one one controller run tons of it and I would set a thermostat in the soil and maintain the temperature with that this is this is the way when I used to do snakes when I would breed snakes I would heat all my snakes with heat tapes so I'd have a big shelf and I kept snakes for my breeders in Sterilite boxes and the heat tape went over one side of the Sterilite box so the snake could be warm on one side and cool on the other and thermal regulate. This would work for soil. I've never done it, but if I was going to do it on a big scale and I needed this, I would do that. That said, I wouldn't do that if I was going to do this on a big scale. I would build a fully insulated heated greenhouse if I was going to do the nursery business thing. So I'm just trying to give you a bunch of ideas here. Um, Humidity domes. You know you go out and you get your little... um, You know, tray that's at Home Depot on sale, a seed starting kit, right? And it comes with a little cover. Uh, Somebody asked, are they worth it? Do they do anything? They do. They do. They seem to really be helpful in germination. And it makes sense because if you're heating the soil at all, or if you're just in a warm area, since they reduce total evaporation, they help keep the soil warm. Once those plants emerge... They lead to dampening off and mold and all that slime and everything else, algae growth and crap. And no, they should come off. They, they, they do seem to work. I've, I've had two trays side by side, exact same situation, same types of seeds. One with a dome, one without. Got faster germination with the dome. Less drying out of the soil with the dome. More stability with the dome. Left, you know. Then okay, well let's 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 take two. Let's leave the dome on and wait till they get, let's say, 50% to the height of the dome plants started to have problems. So that's been my experience. I'm not saying it will always be experienced. That's been my experience. Somebody said, um, should the soil be sterile? It can be, but we know that nature doesn't have sterility. If something's sterile in nature, something got irradiated, like some kind of solar flare annihilated it in outer space or something like that. Like If you go anywhere on planet Earth and you look at soil, The last thing that you want, if you want stuff to grow in it, is for it to be sterile. The advantage of a sterile soil mix, though, when you're starting plants, is you can give them everything they need. They don't need a huge hit of nutrient just to get started anyway. And if it's sterile, it might lack some of the things we want, but it doesn't have the stuff we don't want. So we have no idea if uh, if we use a soil that has any kind of a pathogen in it, and now we bring it indoors and we artificially heat it to 80 degrees to keep it moist, if that pathogen can grow faster than the beneficial organisms, it can completely take over and cause problems. right? You're basically incubating pathogens. So you're generally better off with sterile soil, and if you're using anything that's biologically active, you know exactly what it is from a controlled environment. Um, I wouldn't spend a lot of time really worrying about that, and I would use a good quality soil mix. Though I may, with some starting of seed this year, inoculate some of my cups with mycorrhizal fungi and some without and see if there's an effect there. You know, will it grow too fast in that environment and actually be a problem? Will it not really make a difference, or will it make the plant grow better? So I will say that when it comes to your plants going in your beds... If you want the best results you can get, follow my full fertility plan, and that will include using mycorrhizal fungi. Um, best potting mix. Don't really think it matters. Definitely go with an organic potting mix. I'm going to actually tell you this. If you went with a conventional potting mix, and you started your seedlings, and then you've got that little bitty bit of roots, and you're going to knock some of that dirt off anyway, and you put that out in the garden and everything else you do was kind of organic permaculture practices, I, I, I don't think it would be harmful in any way to you, your family, your food, your pets, or your poop. I, I wouldn't get too wrapped up about it. If you have the option, though, to use a quality organic potting soil, I recommend you do it. For your maximum happiness, I recommend that you get yourself built a frame and put quarter-inch hardware cloth on it, which is basically screen. Try to beg or borrow or steal a piece of it, because you don't need a whole roll of it uh, to do this. And if you if you have other use for it, go ahead and get a roll. And then take that and take some sort of a tray, like the mixing, tr- concrete mixing trays or something is a good thing to do this way. Set your, 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 uh, your, your, uh, your, your screen up on there and fill it with your potting soil and rub your hand through it and sift your potting soil. This extra step will make your life better because what you're going to end up with is that screen is going to have a big couple handfuls of like big thick bulky pieces of wood. When you're trying to start seedlings and you have a little cup and you have like that one big wood chip and you didn't see it and it's right below and the seedlings trying to put that taproot down there and it hits a solid piece of wood. you, You see what I'm saying? And it also, a lot of times when you're trying to plant, so running that through a sifter that will make your life easier. And of course, that's good quality organic matter. Sprinkle that stuff around in your garden or whatever. There's nothing wrong with it. It just, it really shouldn't be in a potting mix, and it is in all the potting mixes. Um, a good potting mix, uh, Eco Scraps is good. Miracle Grow Organic is good. Uh, most organic potting mixes are good. You can mix your own. That's going to be beyond the scope of today's show. Uh, I really think that it's inexpensive enough that if we're talking, 50 to 100 plants especially in your first year while you're learning let's eliminate that variable because we're talking about a skill set today with a lot of variables in it and mixing potting soil is not a variable to starting plants it's another skill developing your own soil mix using your own compost all these things are new skills so let's stick to one skill let's master this and then we can now we know we're good so then the next year I can mix up some potting soil and I can use them prepared, and I can trial them, and I can either say, you know what, they're the same, so I'm good, and I can do mine for less, or you're going to go, that's a lot of work, and it's just it's not worth it to me. You'll be able to make your own decisions that way. Um, the number one plant that people seem to have problems with starting is peppers. Peppers can be tricky um, because they get leggy really fast. This is the number one thing. I would rather your pepper plant, at the end of six, eight weeks of of getting ready to go out in the garden, be five inches tall and stocky than ten inches tall and leggy. It's just going to be a lot better off in the long run. So preventing that legginess in the first place, and people say, well, you know, I I wish I had a ten-inch leggy seedling. Uh, My peppers died. But did they die because they got leggy and fell over. And when they fell over, when they were leggy, the, the stem pinched. And once that stem pinches on a seedling that small, it's not going to grow back from that point if you trim it off and prune it. It's going to die. That's the number one thing I get in peppers. Upward to, we already covered this, but mold, slime, dampening off. Too wet. Too wet, too cold. And not getting good germination from the beginning. Those are the number one things I see... Cause problem with peppers uh, another thing is you know I said we don't really need heat for the grow out we just need heat to germinate if I, when I say that though I'm meaning it's a relatively warm place and we're just using the heating pad to speed up the germination if it's legitimately cold peppers don't grow worth squat so enough warmth as well with peppers will help you and go a long way. And again, getting that light down on them and getting it good. The best pepper starts I've ever done have been in a greenhouse. Good sun. I'll tell you another kind of pepper trick or hack or something like that. Um, Peppers love, once they actually start to grow, to have a drop in temperature and then go back to being really hot. They like to get really warm, get cold, and I don't know if it's just something. See, peppers are actually a perennial shrub. They're not an annual plant. I know that you think they are, you've been told they are, but they're not. If you go to a place where it doesn't go below freezing, you can find pepper bushes that are 12 feet freaking tall in some situations. I mean, I grew jalapenos to six foot tall in a single season. And they were not leggy. They were badass in hoogle beds that I had built in Arkansas. Uh, I got videos where I'm standing next to this jalapeno and it's over my head. And I'm a pretty tall dude. Um, so these are a, a perennial shrub. And so even though they don't go below freezing, you know, places like in Mexico and whatever where these things are native, they do have a temperature gradient. They do have like, and that probably stimulates. They come through their winter and they come out of their winter. So when you're doing that in the short term, you're stimulating that growth. So if there's any way you can cool them down once they've you know, got some size to them, and then let them come back up to temperature. That's kind of a, like a, a little steroid shot for your pepper plants. Uh, next, storing seeds. Lots of questions, lots of people helping each other uh, on on the uh, on the website, uh, on the Facebook page uh, about this one, uh, different boxes people use or whatever. Uh, I'm going to say there was two ways this question was asked. One, I want to keep everything organized, and I want to know where the hell everything is. Well, then, yeah, you know, you might benefit. I think one person uh, that was trying to help out suggested, um, using, like, an art box or something like that, uh, you know, that was designed with little, whatever, filing boxes, et cetera, because you kind of can stack everything up. So, so organization I get, and there can be some real thought that goes into that. But more people were really asking, hey, uh, I, I don't want my seeds to go bad. It's actually, I, I think the prepper space with survival seed vaults and stuff like that has done a disservice to society. Um, with how resilient seeds are. My grandfather started the same pepper and tomato seeds for 40 years. And I wish to God, when I was a teenager and I went off to the Army, I had even thought about this, and I had preserved his seed lines, because I didn't. But he had two, two yellow envelopes. They were probably 10 years old, last time I saw them. And one said peppers, and one said tomatoes. And every year, he would save some seed... And throw them in there. And if there was seed from before in there, he just threw it on top. It's all, it's all the same anyway. How do you know what the new ones are? Don't you worry about it. I mean, that's how he was. He had an old school cigar box. The, the cardboard ones, like we used to take to school and make pencil boxes out of. Yeah. Um, and they went in that, and he put them up on a shelf in what we call the shanty, which is like an outdoor shed where it was subjected to Pennsylvania winters. And because it stayed dry and cool, relative, relatively cool. You know, It was in the summer, it was 98 degrees. It was in there, it was in the shade, it wasn't roasting out in the sun, and it stayed dry. They His germination rates were great. So I don't think we need to get that big deal about it. Uh, some people have talked about vacuum sealing them. I do not recommend this. I think it is better that your seeds can breathe the way they do in nature than to be put into an anaerobic environment. There are seeds that are on the ground right now that have been there for 10 years and they haven't had what's called the germination trigger yet. So some seeds are triggered to germinate, let's say, if you really loosen the soil up. That's what triggers them. So if you go out and you have this patch of grass and there's nothing there but this one type of grass and you think, well, you know, this is really well done and, and, and there must not be any other things there. Especially if nobody was using any herbicides. And you take and you till that area up and do nothing. In a week, you'll see new growth that's not grass from other plants coming up out of that soil. And those seeds were there. It wasn't like they fell there after you did that. That was a germination trigger. And that seed could be 10, 15 years old. I had, when I first moved in here, I went, I bought a bunch of different seeds and I threw them all out of my swale, uh, berms. You know, like coriander and and dill and stuff like that. And some of the stuff, like it didn't grow the first year at all. And so I was like, I don't waste money. I'm not going to buy any more of this. And then two years, three years later, I'm walking through the swales and its conditions have changed. We had a really great spring. All of a sudden there's these plants growing that I didn't throw any seed there for four years. And there they are. I didn't throw any of those seeds there for four years. And there they are. So they they laid out there. The ducks didn't find them. They survived being crapped on by the ducks, walked around scratched by chickens. Uh, The heat of the summer, the cold of the winter, and something triggered that germination in them, and they took off. That's how resilient seeds are. I'm not saying you should keep your seeds on the ground outside. I'm just saying cool, dry space, and don't worry about it. As to organization, I think that's something that's more individual that you figure out for yourself. But if you have so many seeds that you need that big of an organizational structure, You should probably be paring down and finding less varieties and the ones that work best for you. I I love variety. I try some new things every year, but in the end, I always go back to the reliable producers, and that should be your main goal. Um, The next is, well, what about using those solo cups? That was another one people asked me about. Uh, Can you use solo cups versus pots? You can. Um, I think one of the problems with them is they're so deep, people tend to underfill them. It's because it takes a lot of soil to fill one of the, you know, like the college drinking cup, I guess is the the national college drinking cup. Um, So then your lights aren't low enough. Because now the seedling is an inch below the top of the cup. So if you're using grow lights in that situation, you really got to bring them down then. And then you do have to go through and drill them and create drainage in them. So I have no problem. A container is a container. A four-inch square purpose-built pot with drainage holes is what I've gotten the best results out of. I've pretty much gone 100% away from, from 72 cells, 144 cells, and stuff like that. With the right equipment and the right attention to detail, if you are a market producer and you want to sell six packs or something like that, they're great. Somebody growing 20 to 100 plants Four inch and get good quality pots and you'll be able to use them for years. Get trays that they go in and you know when you go to the when you go to like Home Depot, Lowe's, the box stores, look at the trays and find trays that'll work for you. They have tons of them set aside, they'll give them to you for free. You know, if you buy plants and they come in pots that are a good usable size, save the pots post on next door. Hey, I start seeds. Anybody that has some pots that they're going to throw away, I'll take them. You can probably get tons of pots for free. It just seems to work better in my experience. Another person asked, should we just turn our lights on and off every day or should we put them on timers? I think you will get better results anytime you're using artificial light to grow plants with timers because timers don't forget to do their job. Um, I've seen a lot of different Suggestions for photo period, anything from 10 on, 14 off, 14 on, 10 off, 18 on, and 4 off. I've seen it all over the map. My general advice is about 12 hours a day of light. Keep in mind that when your plant goes out into the garden in early spring, nature is not going to be yet ready to give it 12 hours of light. You won't have twelve hour days and you. Some of you guys you're gonna have sixteen hour days by the height of summer. You have crazy long days way up north. But you're probably gonna be putting that plant out into a neighborhood of nine to eleven hours when you when you put it out through most of the country for most of that, that last frost date. Now that, that means that if you've been given the plant eighteen hours, now we have another shock. I like to go closer to that 12 to 14, though, because our light indoors isn't as good as the light outdoors. If you're in a greenhouse, nature takes care of it for you, or some other thing. Uh, another question, what about getting screwed by your last frost date? So I got my plants, they're ready to go, and I was going to plan on putting them in a couple of days after the last frost date, a weekend after the last frost date, whatever it is, and some big front move in, and it's going to hose me bad. And it's going to be below freezing for two days, and if I put them out, they're going to die. What do I do now? Leave them where they are and don't plant them. And the number one thing you can do to not get stuck in this mess is use the bigger pots. I know people are like, I'm going to use the trays, and I'm going to pot them up. Okay, now you've disturbed the roots, now you've put them through shock yet again, and you still haven't solved your space problem. The only reason we use these high-density cells Is to do a lot of plants in a small space. Well, if we plot everything up, they don't fit anymore. Now, again, the cells have a purpose even in the the home gardener situation because if I do broccoli, I can put that out way earlier than peppers because I don't care if young broccoli plants experience 29 degrees or even 27 degrees. They're going to be okay. Especially if they, you know, a lot of us, when we have those frosts late, it doesn't freeze all day long. Again, we're talking wherever you are close to your last frost date. We get one of those weird fronts that come in, and it goes down below freezing for three or four hours. That won't nuke a broccoli plant. It will nuke a pepper plant. So we can have the broccoli and stuff like that in the small cells because we know by X date they're going in the ground. And then just freeze more space of it. Now maybe we can start some later started stuff in some bigger pots. But your peppers, your tomatoes, all that stuff that's going to be sensitive. Let's go ahead and put that right in the size pot that's going to be from the beginning, and then there's enough space that if you have to wait an extra week, it's going to be okay. What if you already put it in the ground and now it comes in? The only choice you have is to cover it at that point. Do what you can. We've done this. We've had days where it got really cold and it really should have killed everything, and I just went out and got a bunch of sticks, and I just stuck them in the ground so the plants wouldn't get smushed, and we took the... the uh, the, the uh, blankets, the moving blankets you get from Harbor Freight, stupid cheap. You should have a bunch of those around. They're so useful. so many things they do. And we just covered it with those and just weighted it down with rocks, and everything survived. Another thing that could happen, though, maybe it's not going to freeze. You get a freak, really windy period where your seedlings are sitting out there and they're just getting the shit beat out of them. Hay bales, plywood barriers, anything you can... Go out and block that wind. So it can look like shit. It's temporary. You know, you use whatever you have. I've had to do that before. I had one year where the wind was like blowing from the east, <laughs> and I'm looking out there, and these little plants I just put in the ground a week or are just—they look like they're in the back of a pickup truck. And so I went out and put all this shit, and I had to prop it up so it wouldn't get blown over. I had like my uh, my outstar outside. Uh, uh, furniture. I had like these chairs that were like high, like bar stools. You know, on both sides of it, so it wouldn't get blown over. And it stopped the wind. And I looked out, and I could see the the barrier kind of pushing back, not falling over. And it, the wind's now coming from the west, and it's just getting the shit beat out on the other way. And it build barriers on the other side. You know, so it happens. It, it does. One of the things you can do, if you can find a good source of straw that you use for mulch and compost, you know, buy your straw for most of the season early. And just surround your beds with it, and then after you're kind of past that point where the plants don't get the shit beat out of them anymore, then go ahead and mulch with your straw, compost with your straw, use the straw for bedding, whatever. I mean, the problem with using it for bedding is if it gets wet, it can start to mold and rot, and that's good for compost, but not good for your animals. But you know, you can you can wrap it in plastic if you need to. Like, so let's say you bought 20 bales and you want four of them for bedding in your chicken coops, well, you can wrap those four in plastic and leave the other out exposed to the elements. Now you create a wind barrier, and you're starting the breakdown process on your straw already. Or and maybe that straw is even going to be just thrown right in the garden as mulch as you move through the season, and it's right there. It's also probably sitting on the ground, and there's all kinds of little insects and worms and stuff coming up underneath that's starting to develop that, and maybe that becomes your new bed next year. There's a lot of different ways to skin that cat. Someone asked about topping your seedlings for bushier plants. So plant gets up, maybe it's about five inches tall. We just cut an inch off of it so that it starts more lateral growth. I've only really seen it work good with two things. And one's a plant you almost can't mess up anyway, but it's mint. Uh, When you're starting new mint and you're like rooting plants and it starts to grow and you trim it and it starts to grow again and you trim it, it just starts to get really beefy and you get a really great runner-throwing mint plant. Um, the other plant, and that's pro- not mostly what we're talking about today because meant so easy, anybody can do it, even me. Um, the, uh, the peppers. That does work with peppers, but sometimes it doesn't. It's a gamble. It definitely works with peppers once they're in the ground and they start sh- throwing up some really long shoots and you prune those shoots off. That really kind of beefs them up and makes them again, you know, Filipino wrestler type thing. Um, but when you do seedlings, when they're still in the tray, it can work, and it can actually stunt them. So unless they're getting too leggy, I wouldn't do it. That, that's just my experience so far. Someone asked, well, wh- wh- when is the point where, for all it costs in time and energy and effort to do this, I'd be better off just going out and buying plants? Uh, we'd call that the cost benefit ana- benefit analysis Let's, there's two reasons to do seed starting and, and and I think there's only really two good ones uh, one is to save money and two is to be able to grow what you would not otherwise be able to grow. I guess three would be just for the the ability to develop the skill right but the skill is so that you can either save money or you can like you can get a variety you can 't find locally that someone else did for you. So, if I want to grow like some kind of mystical tomato that's on the cover of um, uh, the seed catalog and it looks like a purple golden gem and no one around me provides me that. I guess the other one would be you know what's in there, like all of the stuff at the box stores, the Bonnie's and stuff, it's all grown with chemicals. I don't worry about it because once it's in my garden, by the time it's producing food, it's great, and it, you know the stuff that isn't, that would not be in that category would be like spinaches and lettuce, and I'm not paying $3 a plant for a freaking lettuce plant that's already halfway grown. I, God, I'm going to be eating their toxins directly out of the leaf. Tomatoes and peppers and stuff, I don't worry about that. I would say, if you're going to need six tomato plants and six pepper plants, and everything else you're going to direct sow into the ground, and that's pretty much what you're going to need to buy... Um, then you are probably going to be better off even paying full retail going out and buying your plants because it's going to take a long time for that light and the energy and the time and all to repay itself. I think you're in a perfect place to learn the skill set. You've got so little to take care of. You don't need much space. You can focus on getting really good at it and developing your system because here's the beauty of developing your system. You develop your system, and it works. And it's a big enough thing where you can plant and start and effectively take care of 24 plants. When you want to be able to do 48, all you do is double what you have. You have no second-guessing anymore. So I think it's a perfect place to learn from. But if you're never going to have a desire to be much more than that, and a lot of us don't, then you're probably better off buying your plants. That's if you're going to Lowe's. If you can find Joe Blow's nursery and he has good quality and he sells plants in six packs instead of one plant at a time, then you're probably at a point where most of us could break even at the worst buying our plants. You know, when you can buy plants for $2 a six pack. Think about how much effort goes into producing those those six plants. So then you're back to the point of, now I can't save money. Do I just want to know the skill so I can be bigger someday? Do I just want to know the skill so that I can know the skill if I ever need it? Or are there four things I want to grow that nobody around here is going to provide for me and they need to be started indoors or in a greenhouse? Or do I need to do a shitload and now the cost-benefit analysis swaps? Outside of that, there's no shame in going out and buying your plants, none. Um, that's kind of the way to look at it. But I, I'm going to tell you that the way to find plants that you can, you know, buy and get and still save money by gardening is not Lowe's and Home Depot. You know, and they're fine for some tomatoes and peppers. Everything else, you are losing money. I'm telling you right now, you're going to lose money. Versus doing it yourself and just throwing a seed in the ground and hoping. Okay? Um, but you find the local smaller nurseries. It maybe sell for a dollar a plant. Or a do- There's a place here, they don't do six packs generally, but they do plants I think it's a dollar fourteen a plant. It's a feed store. And they're good quality plants. They also have shitty quality plants. Depending on when they show up. Like If you get their plants the day the guy delivers them, they're the best plants you can get your hands on. You show up three days later in our springs with our wind, and between the wind beating the plants and the soil drying out, they're okay. You show up five days in the spring after those plants were delivered by the company and the guy that produces them, and they are crap. Let's say 90% of them are crap because the staff doesn't stay on top of watering them. They're in little four-inch cups, but the wind dries them out in about four hours, so they water them twice a day. Do the math. And so... And then they cram them into these shelves, and they don't get enough sunlight, and some of them get baked. And So if you find a place like that, like if you find a nursery doing their own, you're not going to have that problem. They're going to have their table set up with misters and stuff, or they're going to have a kid. He shows up for every work, day of work and gets fired. He goes around five times a day and waters everything. They're going to have something to take care of this. If you find a place that's like a mom-and-pop or small business, but they're getting their plants from somewhere else, The question you need to ask right now, not when are you getting your plants, when do you get your plants? What day? Most of them are going to get plants every week, every two weeks through the growing season. If they get their plants on Thursday, go there Thursday. Go there Thursday. The other thing, I like to take care of mom-and-pop businesses and small businesses. I'm not big on circumvention, but, you know, where is that plant coming from? Does that nursery sell direct to the public, and sell through a retail channel, right? Don't ask the, peer, the the guy that runs the store that you would be buying them from, but just Google it, find out. And then I would say, unless they're stupid marked up, and there's a huge savings, if you have that existing relationship with that shop owner, you buy other things there, pay the extra 20 cents a plant, right? Don't worry about it. But if he just really doesn't take care of them, and they're always poor quality and you can't get there today they're delivered or what have you, then go to the source. That would be another way to change that cost-benefits uh, cost analysis. Uh, lots of questions on planting up, which is we have it in a little plant pot. Now we're going to move it to a big pot. Again, th- I, there are some circumstances where that could be necessary. If you're in that circumstance, deal with it. I don't like to disturb the roots of a plant any more than I can. If I could, I would plant everything. Directly where it was going to grow. I would direct seed everything if I could. We only do this because we can't or to lengthen our productivity season. Right? So if I start this plant indoors, even though I could start it outdoors and it would eventually produce for me, I'm going to start getting production in May instead of not get production until August. Now I'm going to start it indoors. Right? And I I think we should try more direct seeding. You you, you say, in my climate, I can't direct sow tomatoes. Well, put that seed in the ground after the danger of frost has passed and see what happens. Plant it next to a lettuce plant. By the time it's big enough to make a determination of whether it's going to be worth it or not, the lettuce will have done its deal and you can cut it off and let the tomato grow. Right? Try it. See. If you can direct sow, direct sow. I'm gonna try more of that this year. One of the ways you can really increase your ability to direct sow, take a half gallon ball jar, a small fish bowl, a small fish tank. You go to like Hobby Log when the end of your glass sale and get the small fish bowl glasses for a couple bucks. Stick that on your soil where you're gonna plant. Don't plant it yet, put it there. Leave it three or four days in the sun. Take your thermal gun, your e City thermal gun, go outside and shine the light on the soil, even early in the morning before the sun started to come back from the next day. Then lift the bowl up and shine the light on the soil under the bowl. It will be warmer. But when you really will impress yourself is scratch away an inch of soil a foot away from the bowl, shoot that with your gun, then scratch away an inch of soil where you've been solarizing the soil and warming it up, and shoot that. It will blow you away how warm it is down there. Now that you've warmed the soil, now drop your tomato seed in there, okay? If that bowl can give you two and a half, three weeks of being able to direct so early, okay, think about it this way. Like, you are not going to put the plant out for three more weeks, but you put the seed in the ground today. It's going to be under the ground. It's not going to be freezing. It's going to be warm during the day from the bowl or the glass jar or whatever, It's going to germinate, and even if it's going to hit, you know, you get that light frost, 31 degrees or whatever, it's going to have enough residual warmth to protect that little plant, and you pull it off. The plant that you grew for seven weeks indoors versus the one that went three weeks outside with that solarium over top of it, direct sow one will probably produce more for you that year. So, again, we're doing this where we have to, or because we want to sell it to somebody else, right? Um, Do that as much as you can. I think there's a lot of opportunity there. Um being doing your starting outdoors in general like can you just start plants outdoors as i said best results i've ever had have been with natural sunlight whether it's a low e window where actually sunlight comes in your house i just haven't had that for so long you know it's just sad to me that my, my house has never let light in the freaking windows i i just don't know why but i just never seem to find a house that lets light in the windows the you know, I've never built a house from scratch, or I would have a solarium on the house. Your main issues, though, are being warm. And if you get the right solar exposure, even when it's pretty cold out, that's the other thing. Soil can be warm when air is cold if it's getting enough solar exposure. And you have, well, if you're doing that, then you know there's a potential that a freeze is going to come. And because if it wasn't, you just plant it in the ground. So then you need to be doing it in a way that's very expedient to be able to go outside and bring the plants in. It could be this simple. If you have a garage with the right aspect, that every morning you're going out to your garage, and you're lifting up your garage door, and you put all your plants outside your garage, and you water them, and you go to work, and you come home, and at the end of the evening, if it's going to be too cold... You bring your plants back in your garage and close the door, and the residual warmth off of the house keeps it from ever going below freezing in your garage, and your plants are protected. That, And if you can do that, and your plants aren't going to get too beaten by the sun or too beaten by wind, and they're not going to dry out, and you can set it up so that doesn't happen, then it's a great way to go. If you can create enough of a windbreak, still allow enough sun to come through, create some kind of a, you know, maybe it's a very low-level shade cloth if you have really sunny days in your springs, Um, that can work really well. You can water your plants from the bottom during that period of time, and if you have your tray so that they can sit into a second tray with water in it, right, they can sit in that water during the day. They're getting a lot of transpiration and stuff like that. When you pull it out at the end of the day, and bring your, it's almost like an aquaponics situation. There's, you know, if you can do that, that's fine, but you're going to have to, like, if you miss a freeze, all your stuff's going to die. And if there's a hailstorm, all your stuff's going to get pounded while you're at work. And if there's a really bad windstorm and you don't have good enough uh, wind blocks, it's going to get tore up. And if the cat decides to poop in it, it's going to dig all of it out. And if the neighbor's dog climbs, you see, like, If you're really outside, not in a greenhouse, you have all of this potential. Greenhouse, to me, is probably the best thing you can do. Um, I really think that one of the the investments you can make that really does make this a lot more viable is one of the small pop-up greenhouses. I had one here. I got a pretty big one. I spent too much money on it. We got an ice storm. The ice stuck to it, it weighed it down, and it broke the fiberglass poles that pop it up. They pop up like a, like a camping tent. Uh, the company I'd recommend to do this with is called Springhouse. I've had two of these. Both of them eventually got destroyed by ice. One when I lived in Arlington and one here. And in spite of that, I would still recommend them. We got snow here when I had these things. Significant snow. They shed snow just fine. Especially if you just throw a small heater in there uh, when it snows. Uh, There's enough that the snow will melt just enough to come off. It's ice. When you get that, and and then ice, and then if snow falls on top of the ice, it sticks to the ice. And it kind of becomes this, and and both times that happens. So as long as you are willing to do or set up some system that prevents those types of greenhouses from getting ice buildup on them and the weight collapsing them, they work really well. You have to understand that a greenhouse is going to be, without heat, the same temperature at night inside and outside. Unless you've built it against a thermal mass, you've put significant insulation, you're doing compost heating, etc. That greenhouse could be 30 degrees warmer than the air temperature when the sun's out and 20 minutes after dark the temperatures will be within a few degrees of each other, at least the air temperature. The ground temperature will last longer, radiate some, but it will very quickly, all your heat will escape through the roof of the greenhouse up to the sky and be gone. So the greenhouse will not, again, will not, 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 not keep your plants from being frozen to death at night if your temperatures are going to, you know, 26 degrees. Your tomato plants, your pepper plants will fall over and die in their youth as as babies, In that environment. However, many of us live where during this time of the year, it doesn't freeze 85% of the time. It's the 15% that kills you. So if you have a small greenhouse, and when you have those situations, you bring the plants inside, you're great. Because what the greenhouse is doing is giving you warm, moist, climate-controlled days that gives you fantastic growth. As good as we can do with artificial light, nothing beats the sun. That's what the plants really want to grow under. So I think that the small greenhouses, I'm talking like four foot by four foot, again, for the type and number of plants we're talking about, two, three, four of the cheap plastic snap-together shelves, and they have holes in them so that everything falls through, and you'll find your plants will not dry out as fast in there as they will in a lot of other places because they're protected from the wind now you have to open them when it gets too hot and things like that do you work you know you got to you know can the kids come home and open the windows in the later part of the day or you know is it, you got you know how much can you put into them but if you can manage them they're fantastic and because they're that small now we can actually afford if it's going to be 29 degrees and we're a little bit worried we could take a small 900 watt space heater Set it in the middle of the damn thing. Say, so, yeah, it's going to be a bigger electric bill tonight, but put on its lowest setting, and it will probably be warm enough in there. Um, if we only have a couple trays of um, plants that really can't handle it, we could take a couple brooding lights with the brooding uh, brooding lamps in them—you know, the reflector ones that you put over a chicken brooder—and shine it on those plants, and they're not going to go below freezing. Now, if you're going to go down to 40 below zero like you guys just did, yeah, but most of the country, by the time you're into this period of time, you're not getting a lot of the really brutal cold anymore, right? Counting back from your last frost date, six weeks, four weeks, five weeks, depending on what you're planning, it's a lot more forgiving. Uh, What else do we have? Um, Almost done here. Um, Being too ambitious, doing too much, too many plants. The first time especially. Yeah, absolutely. Kind of covered that a bunch of times. That stick to a few of these, a few of those, a few of this other thing. Somewhere in the neighborhood of four to six dozen is a lot of plants. It's a lot of plants. And if you think about the savings, now now we can start talking about the savings. Like, So if we do four dozen plants, that's 48 plants. If you were to buy those 48 plants from Home Depot at $298 a plant, uh, new math, blah, 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 the common core, yada, yada, actual mental algebra, $143. Check my math if you want. And some, some pennies, 143 bucks. Well, now, you know, we can pay for three or four Kingbow lights and uh, a plastic shelving in it, or we can pay for a small greenhouse and everything we've got paid for. Just from that alone. Now, don't fool yourself though, because you probably weren't going to go out and buy 140 bucks worth of plants from Home Depot. You probably weren't, and you probably don't need to, because you probably, if your garden's relatively small, you probably don't even need to start that many plants. But you could start that many and cover your losses and or give some plants over to friends. So yeah, definitely with your seed starting as you're getting started. Let's try to do a few things really well, develop our system and expand from there. And let's try to put most of our plants in the ground where they're going to go from day one. And again, one of the biggest tips I can give you is any kind of a glass uh, container put over top of the soil, warm it up, protect that young plant, get it growing faster. Go to the show notes today because there's a lot of material in the show notes for you guys to help you out. One is a video where I, I called it "Using a, a Fish Tank as a Mini Greenhouse." And I had this 40 breeder reptile tank, and uh, there was nothing in it, and I had some lettuce plants that I had started. And this was like early March, I think. Actually, I put them out in like third week of February in, in North Texas. And lettuce plants, it can go, you know, good. Well, I started lettuce plant. There was a good garden, established soil. Everything grew really well for me there. Um, put them out like third week of February. Everything lived. Nothing died because it wasn't protected. But I put half of the, the lettuce plants so where I could take this 40-gallon tank and put it over top of them. And I show the, the video I show is about two and a half weeks after they went in the ground. The ones without the protection were not much bigger than the day they went in the ground. The ones with the protection and being warmed all day long. And like if it got really hot, I would go out there and like prop up the tank, put a rock under it, let some air flow. If it's it super hot, I would just take it off and then put it back on. Take it off, you know, in the middle of the day for a couple hours. Um, they were three times the size, so that is a great way to be able to plant in the ground, warm the soil, and get so much better results because those roots find their groove, literally and figuratively, and nothing ever messes with them. So I hope today's show was helpful for you. Um, Again, another incentive to follow me on social media, because you would have had more input into today's show if you did. Uh, So do consider doing that. Definitely check out It's a Jack Life on Instagram. We are working hard to build that after neglecting the concept and the platform for almost 10 years. (laughs) Like a fool, I feel now. Anyway, um, I also wanted to talk to you guys about supporting the show. Now, I, I think you probably got more than 18 cents of value out of today's show. If one tip saves you one problem, it's worth two dimes. So, consider joining the members brigade. Just go to the survivalpodcast.com, click on members, you can sign up there, and then use the discounts on things like, oh, I don't know, seeds and plants, and get your money back every year. And that way you support us and you put the money back in your pocket. Uh, next up is the other way you can support us to do your online shopping at uh, tspaz.com. Now, I have a bunch of products uh, in the show notes today that you can check out, including I have a link to the entire lineup. From the Springhouse Flowerhouse Company. And actually, the company's called Flowerhouse with the small greenhouses that I was talking about. And they sell a lot of other stuff too. The greenhouses, they, this is not the item of the day, by the way, but the greenhouses they make, the, uh, the shells are actually made in Germany. Very, very high quality. You can check that out. I got a lot of other stuff that you can check out. But the item of the day today, and the one that I recommend the most for people for starting plants, is the Kingbow Reflector 45 watt LED grow light. These things are 27 bucks a piece. When they came out, they were almost 40, and I recommended them then, and I called them an incredible value. So you know I feel more about that way about them. This is the number two selling item of all time off tspaz.com. So I've been running reviews for over three years now. This item sold better than anything except for the Gerber little mini uh, knives, because those are like six bucks, and everybody has 80 of them and gives them away. Um, but I've sold literally thousands of these lights. I have not had anybody call, complain, bitch, email, grouse, gripe. I've had people say, you know, after a season or two, a few of the lights went out. They still work, but a few of the LEDs went out. And, but they still work. And for 27 bucks, what more could you ask for? Um, if you do what I said today about getting that light low down on the plants, these things will be great for starting your seeds. They are a very low electrical draw. And they put out a great amount of of light for you in return for what they ask for. One thing I want to say about these LED grow lights, you know, they're pink and blue and white and all. Do not look directly into them. It's like looking directly into sunlight. It can burn out your retinas. It won't hurt, but it will hurt eventually. Don't look at these things directly. I just need to say that. Uh, But you can find that review. You can find everything that I've ever reviewed at tspaz.com. That brings us to our song of the day. Our song of the day today is by Lori McKenna. This is Lori McKenna Week. And it's called Ruby's Shoes. Uh, and this is a, a a really deep song, if you understand the history around it. This song is about Ruby Bridges. In On November fourteenth, 1960, she was six years old, and she made history as the first black girl to ever go to public school in Louisiana. I, I, I think people that are screaming about racism today could do well to study history and understand how far this nation came so fast. Because 1960, we had real, hardcore, institutionalized, publicly acceptable racism in this country when a child was not even allowed to go to school because she was black. And she walked into this school as a pawn in the game of civil rights A pivotal image marking the start of the desegregation of public schools in the U.S. This little girl bravely walked through a crowd. Six-year-old girl. A crowd of raised fists and jeering faces. Pelting this little girl with insults. To become the first African-American child to attend a public school in Louisiana. The mob mentality escalated. As this little six-year-old girl was escorted by federal marshals up the steps of the school. She didn't flinch. She later said that the noise was to her no louder than Mardi Gras. She spent the entire first day at the principal's office with her mother, mother listening to the mob outside and watched as other mothers grab their children's hands and took them from the building in protest. And it was the beginning of the change for the better in our country, accepting people for who they were rather than the color of their skin. And she became... Uh, an icon in the civil rights movement. Usually I just fade into the song now. What I actually want to play for you is an interview uh, of Oprah Winfrey talking to Ruby Bridges fairly recently, only let's say a few years ago, about all of the problems, things like Trayvon Martin and things like that, Black Lives Matter. And uh, Oprah doesn't really seem completely on board with what she has to say. Because well, what she has to say is, well, should we be marching in the streets? Absolutely. But we should be marching for everybody and calling for an end to all of the violence. And it's amazing to me that the people that were used by the political system to further an agenda pro or anti-anything generally are the ones that actually experience it because they're not the manipulators. They all seem to come out with this viewpoint. And it's the manipulators. It's the manipulators that tend to take one side versus the other instead of just the simple side of right. With that, it's been Jack Spirica with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't.
2: When you look at the protests for Ferguson and Eric Garner, what do you say about that? You know, Oprah, um... I think I have a different take on that, and it's just me personally. Mm -hmm. Um, I so sympathize with the Brown family, um, Trayvon Martin's family. Mm -hmm. Because your own son was shot. So I understand what that pain is like for them. I believe every life is important. I believe anyone who takes a life should be held accountable. I believe that if we are to be true to Dr. King's legacy, we should be marching in the streets, but we should be marching in the streets for all the violence that is happening um, across you mean the country. Black on black crime as well. Black on black crime, the police, and I. Totally agree that there's definitely a pattern there because when you uh, of unarmed black men being absolutely shot. when you think about how a person can jump the fence of the White House, run all the way across the lawn, get inside, mm-hmm. travel two or three rooms, mm-hmm. and not be shot, then how can these unarmed black men be shot down. There's definitely something there, but I believe that we all need to take to the streets. We need to be calling on a ceasefire um, because there are many, many parents like myself. Mm-hmm. A ceasefire of violence, across period, the board.
0: across the board.
2: And you mean black-on-black black crimes, police officers against unarmed black men. Absolutely. You mean all of it. You I mean, mean all of, of it. it. You have to take responsibility for, for all of all it. All of it if we are really going to make the change that we really want to make.
0: the sun.